Thanks, Craig. Um, we're back in Ezekiel tonight, uh, chapter 36. Uh, that's on page 867, if you have one of the uh, Burgundy Church Bibles that you should have received as you came in the door. Page 867, it's, we're going to be looking from verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. Um, just by, by way of introduction tonight, it's helpful to understand um, something important about how God worked prior to the arrival of Jesus, how he worked through this nation, the nation of Israel. Uh, They were God's people. They were chosen by God uh, as part of God's plan to fix the brokenness of this world. They were unique not because they were special, but they were unique because God chose them. Israel to be his chosen people and he gave them some astounding promises in the bible we we call it his covenant his covenant was one in which he promised that they would be this great nation that would bless all the nations of the world that they would have a land and, and a king who would establish the kingdom of God for all eternity that they would have God himself living amongst them like he did in Eden with, with Adam and Eve. You see, God's salvation plan for the world was to begin with the nation of Israel. And so Israel's purpose, therefore, was to show the world who God is. God gave them laws, he gave them commands so that, so that they would stand out as being different, so they would show the world that, that they are God's chosen people, that they are unique. They were to be his representatives to a world that's in rebellion against him. They were to be like light in the darkness. There was one big problem though with this covenant, and the problem was Israel. You see, rather than proclaiming the greatness of God's name to the nations, they profaned it. They cheated on God through false gods and dumb idols. They disobeyed and turned away from God and from God's word and God's commands and God's laws. In fact, in Ezekiel, we're told that um, they were so bad that even some of the, the nations surrounding them thought it was detestable what they did. And so after hundreds and hundreds of years of God pleading with them, remember the covenant, remember who you are, God eventually said, enough is enough. And he wiped them out. He wiped them out, almost completely, not quite. And so as we come to to the book of Ezekiel, we are coming to the lowest moment in Israel's history where they had almost been completely eradicated in an act of judgment by God himself. All God's promises to them were, were tied up with the land, with, with the king, with the city of Jerusalem, with the temple. But God sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, to empty the land, to eradicate the monarchy, and to take what was left of God's people back to Babylon as prisoners. Ezekiel himself was one of those prisoners that were taken away. And so, as God speaks to Ezekiel, it's to people who have nothing, who have been stripped of everything, who are in probably the most hopeless situation imaginable. But the big question now is, And the big question after the exile is what's going to happen 
to these promises that God made? Did, did, did God not foresee that this would happen? Was this a mistake to make promises to these people? How is he going to bring this to fruition when all that's left of this, of this nation is this ragtag bunch of prisoners by the, the rivers of Babylon with nothing? Well, that is what Ezekiel chapters 33 to 48 are all about. God is going to bring about his promises in, in the most glorious way you can imagine. You see, Israel's failure wasn't a botched first attempt by God to try and save the world. Far from it. That old covenant was there to help us understand and to see the need of the new covenant and all the promises that would be brought to fruition through the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Last week we began by looking at chapter 34 and we saw that God's promise to restore the monarchy would be with a king who is both God and man. A promise that points forward to the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus. This week in Ezekiel 36, we're going to learn how God is going to restore the most important thing that was destroyed and ruined through the exile. His reputation amongst the nations. And we'll see that's so important because when God works to restore his reputation, that process involves the salvation of the world. Let's read it then. Big promises. Ezekiel 36 verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their, contact, their, their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and, your, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer the disgrace among the nations because of famine. 
Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sin and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated. Instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it, they will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says once again. I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with the flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray before we look at this passage together. Father, we have sung of how we need your Holy Spirit to speak to us from your word. And we ask again that by your Spirit you would enlighten the pages of Scripture, that you would bring them to life and that you would pierce our hearts and we would see great truths of who you are, of what you do and of why you do it. Father, may we marvel at your holiness. May we be astounded at your grace. And may we be ashamed at our sin. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. And we ask that we would see Jesus. For he is the Alpha and the Omega. Everything is about him. And Lord, may we see him as we study these great promises that you gave thousands of years ago to these struggling exiles. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this passage in detail, and I just have three very simple points tonight. It's a three-point alliteration, so everything is well. God's reputation ruined by sin, firstly. Secondly, we're going to see how God's reputation was restored by grace. And thirdly, we're going to see God's reputation recognized by the world. This is the, the promise that points towards this glorious new covenant fulfilled in Jesus. Firstly then, we need to see how God's reputation was ruined by the sin of Israel. Uh, God begins by summing up to Ezekiel why his judgment of his people was so necessary. He says that his, his people had defiled the land through their sin. He, he, he compares their, their wickedness and their sin to being like someone who's unclean. You can see that in verse 17. By the way, don't get too tied up in the comparison to a woman in her menstrual impurity. Um, it's a reference to an Old Testament ceremonial law. It's nothing to do with being bad or, or immoral, but uh, it was a sign of being ceremonially unclean. If you, read to, if you were to read the Old Testament law, you see that there's loads of stuff that could do that to you. But if you were ceremonially unclean, it meant that you could not be in God's presence. And so God is using this as an illustration to say that Israel can no longer be in his presence. You see, they were made unclean through their willful disobedience of God. 
Remember that these people were to be God's ambassadors to the world. And what did they do? Well, there's loads of stuff. But if you were to read Ezekiel 22, you would get quite a comprehensive list of what Israel did. They oppressed the poor. They oppressed the homeless and the widows and the orphans. They extorted each other out of greed. They were liars. They were murderers. They engaged in all forms of sexual immorality. They were idolaters. And they would even sacrifice their own children to the worship of foreign gods. Some representation to the world. And so what could God do with them? He, he, he has to judge them. It would be wicked to, to let that sin go unpunished. But, but God's judgment then presented him with, with a new problem. He staked his reputation on Israel. And now that they have been driven from the promised land through this judgment and scattered throughout the nations, what are the nations saying of God's people? Verse 20. These are the people of the Lord and yet they had to go out his land. I think you meant to read in a kind of tone of mockery and sarcasm. So much for, for these people's God. Look at them. So much for being protected by this God. Here, here they are. They're meant to be in this promised land and they're prisoners in Babylon. God's judgment was necessary for him to be good and just. And yet it damaged his reputation. It's kind of like if, you know, someone worked for a company and they were caught embezzling funds, they would have to be punished, but it would bring a bad rep to the company. Or we've seen this all over the news recently. It's, think of, of Harvey uh, Weinstein and the scandal that's going on there. Yet of course he has to be brought to justice and punished for what he has done, but it's brought disrepute upon his production company, which I think shut down. So what's God going to, going to do about this? How is he going to restore his reputation when Israel had dragged it through the muck? Well, it's amazing. From what we've read in Ezekiel, we know that he's, he's going to change Israel. He's going to fix them so that the nations will see how great he is. And we'll see in a minute how he does that. But we need to first of all realize why. Why is God going to fix Israel? Why is he going to restore this nation? Why is he going to restore his promises? Verses 21 to 23, they make it crystal clear that it's not because of them he is going to act. It's because he is concerned for the holiness of his name. You see, if, if, the kind of, if the judgment of the exile was just about judging Israel's sin, God could have just wiped them out completely, and that would have been just and good. But there's more at stake here. And what's at stake is God's name. See, God's chief concern in all that he does is the holiness and the glory of his name. Now let's chew on that, because I'm willing to bet that might jostle with some of you. Uh, even if you're a Christian, that might kind of uh, go against the grain a little bit. Really, is that God's chief concern, his glory, the holiness of his name? Now here's what we must recognize, I think, if we're to, to understand that, because that is God's chief concern. First of all, we must recognize that God is not just 
um, me times a million. He's not just like a bigger version of me with, with superpowers. And I say that because that's often how God is presented. Like he's us and, and therefore we kind of foolishly hold him to our standards. You see, if our concern for ourselves was the glory of our name, that would be wicked. That would be wrong. And it would be so wrong because we are not the most important people in the universe. It's not all about us. But if God really is God, then he is the most important being in the universe and everything is about him. He is the be all and end all. And therefore, if God wasn't concerned for himself chiefly, then it would imply that there is something greater that he should be concerned about. And whatever that is, that would be God. You see, for God to be God, he must fundamentally exalt that which is most worthy of exalting. He must praise that which is most worthy of praise. He must glorify that which is most glorious, namely himself. If he didn't, he would be a fake. God's concern is his glory. It's his name. That might jostle us because, maybe because we have too low a view of him. But secondly, it's probably because we've got too high a view of ourselves. You see, we think God should be concerned for us. I think we kind of have sometimes a a L'Oreal approach to ourselves. You know the shampoo advert, you're worth it. And so we think we're, we're worth it. We, we're lovable. We, we are, we're worthy to, to be exalted. God should love me. God should like me. God should do things for me. But here's the truth of the Bible. We are messed up sinful people who are all unclean in God's eyes. Not, not just Israel. Every one of us here has thought and said and, and done things, even this past week, that that are probably detestable, that we would be ashamed of others seeing and knowing. There's nothing in us that God needs. There's nothing in us that he needs. But, and this is a big but, we must not separate in our minds God's concern for his glory to his love for the world. Because when God is concerned about his glory, and he is, that's his chief concern. When he's concerned about his glory, that was the chief concern of Jesus. That his father would be glorified. When God is concerned for his glory, it doesn't look like our foolish selfishness. It looks like him giving up everything for those who deserve nothing. It looks like a humble Galilean peasant despised by men and crucified on a cross so we could be forgiven. When God seeks his glory, then we are loved, we are saved. When God works for his reputation, we are the beneficiaries. Praise God that that is true. Let me show you why in our second point. God is going to restore his reputation through grace. Now previously in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 35, which we've not looked at, um, God gave promises to restore to Israel her king. And in chapter 35, he talks about restoring to Israel her land. But that's not enough. Because remember, the problem with Israel is Israel. In fact, the problem with with mankind is mankind. We are what is wrong with this world. 
God needs to fix us and, and make us new. If his reputation is to be upheld and if there's to be any hope of, of us being with him for all eternity. And so what we get in verses 24 through 32 is God's description of how he's going to renew and change his people. And the great thing about these verses is that it's not just describing what happened to Israel, but it's bigger than that. It's what Jesus has made possible for the whole world. This is what it means to be a Christian in these verses. It's about being made new. In fact, Jesus calls it new birth when you come to know him. And so as we look at this, I want to, I want to encourage us who, who, who are Christians here, who are maybe feeling like the exiles and maybe in hopeless situations or not knowing whether they are close to God or not, to see the great thing that God is doing in your life. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to see that this is what God is offering you, a complete renewal. So how does he make us new? Well, it begins, first of all, with the cleansing of sin. Have a read of verse 24 there with me. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you back from all countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Notice the refrain there, I will, I will. All throughout this chapter, I will. This is nothing to do with Israel. This is God's grace, God's initiative. And whilst these exiles did indeed return to their land 70 years later, the cleansing from sin and that promise of cleansing was realized 600 years later. That is the very reason Jesus came, to cleanse us from every wrong that we have done. And that is what he achieved through his death on the cross. He becomes the filth of my sin. And he suffers God's punishment for it so that I can be clean. His atonement is like a a water that just washes away all that's impure and wrong with my life. How do you know you've got that? 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Change renewal, cleansing, it all begins with repentance. That's what Jesus gave. That's what he achieved, a chance to to wipe the slate clean in God's eyes. That's what he offers to us all. Why was it because I was desirable to God? Was it because God thought, hey, you know, Andy Robertson mucks up, but really deep down, he's a good guy. Uh, He's a nice guy. I like him. Not at all. There's absolutely nothing in me that was desirable for God. Nothing that he finds attractive. We are a stiff-necked, rebellious people who give no thought to him, who feed our selfish desires, who consciously or subconsciously hate him and his rule in our lives. That's what we were like. God owes us nothing, only judgment. We deserve hell. Nice outwardly respectable people that's what we deserve 
when it comes to salvation, the only thing that we bring to the equation is the dirt of our sinful hearts. That's it. He does everything. He will cleanse. He will save. He will suffer for our sin. And he will forgive only him, never us. And he does it not because we are great, but because he is great. And his name is great. He does it not to make much of us, but to make much of him. You see how liberating that truth is? When God's concern is for his glory. Can you imagine if somehow it was down to us and how well we did? Even if it was just a little bit down to us, we would be constantly in fear, wouldn't we? Have I done enough? Will God accept me? Will God like me? Oh, the freedom to know that it's not about me. That's a truth that that frees you from self-righteousness and gives you such a security that is unmatched. I know Jesus loves me. I know my sin has been cleansed forever. I know I'm safe because it was dependent upon him. Not me. And that's what gives glory to his name. Secondly, we see here that God wants to change us. God wants to change his people by giving them a new heart with new desires. Jesus doesn't just die to give you a blank slate. He wants to make everything about us new. He wants to to change us. Forgiveness is, is just the start. It's not the end. It's the start of this process. And what Ezekiel talks about here is not just pointing to, to the work of Jesus, but to the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason we were, were cleansed from sin was so that God could live in us by his Spirit and begin this process of restoring us. Verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, sin, wrongdoing, is not just some kind of external act. It's, it's an internal problem that, that requires a, a radical change in the very uh, nature of our being. And when you accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers, God gives you his Holy Spirit to begin that process. God himself is now in you and he's working through you to change you. To use Ezekiel's language, he's taken that heart that was once stony cold and dead towards him and he's made it fleshy and alive. What does that mean? It means that all our affections, all our desires have been changed and they're now bent towards our creator. It means that you start to become more sensitive to God. It means that you you start to want to obey his laws. Do you notice the language here? I'll change their hearts so that they will be moved to, to obey me. Change comes first before the obedience. It means that you want to love Jesus and you do want to obey him more. So let me ask, is that you? My brother and sister, if it is, then God has radically changed your heart. If your desire is to be more like Jesus and and you wish that you could obey him more, it's like you've got the DNA of God in your veins now. But it's not just individual. 
There's, there's a corporate element to this, isn't it? God's wanting to, to change not just the individual, but a group of people. He's wanting to create, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, a new humanity. A process of rest- restoration is seen in the church. We as the church are being molded to be like him. We show that, that we are a church of fleshy hearts and, and not stony hearts in the way that we speak to each other and the way that we build each other up and the way that we show kindness and compassion and forgiveness. That's what fleshy hearts look like in a church. That's the new humanity of Jesus. That's the, the Holy Spirit changing you to walk in obedience to God's law. And do you see how this ties into to God's reputation today? Because God today, Jesus has staked his reputation upon the, his church. And if the church is to be distinctive from the world, then it will do so through its obedience to God's word and its radical love for one another. Third and final has, aspect of this new humanity is Conviction. The conviction of sin and the sense of shame. Have a look at verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. See, if God's spirit's at work within you, if you're connected to him, and he's renewing your heart, you you should have this desire to want to obey him. But you should also have this sense of shame for when you don't obey him. Sense of shame, it's sin. And it's not the shame of getting found out. It's not a self-righteous shame. It's not self-pity. It's a shame at knowing how you've treated God. Have you ever felt that? You know, you just wish that there was a button that you could press that would stop you sinning completely. You hate your sin because you don't want to treat God that way. If that's you, then God is working in your life because that is not natural for a human being to think that. Spiritual growth as a Christian is, is, a, is about becoming more aware of just how bad you are, whilst at the same time more aware of just how loved you are. That's what the Spirit of God does. He causes us to, to want to obey God's word, to be united to each other, and to feel the shame of our sin. And you know, this chapter is so helpful because there's so much dodgy teaching about the Holy Spirit out in the church. Let me read to you something. It's from a a popular evangelistic course that many churches use, and and it is a great course in many ways. I'm not knocking it, but their teaching in the Holy Spirit is not helpful. It's what they say. When the Spirit comes through you, sometimes it's literally like as if a gale has blown through a room. Sometimes people find it easier not to stand up any longer but to lie down. Sometimes you see people breathing in deeply like they're breathing in the Spirit of God. Just so you know, that's not what the Bible teaches about what the Holy Spirit does in someone's life. People may have experiences, but the problem is when when people hear stuff like that, their confidence is shattered because I've not had that experience. They feel that they don't have God's Spirit with them. 
Look, you know that God's Spirit is working through you when you are filled with a sense of shame at your sin. And you want to obey God's law. That's why Jesus says in John 16, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what he does. He's not there to to throw people into convulsions. And that's the most supernaturally powerful thing he can do when he can convict us of our sin. It's a great thing. When you've been convicted of sin and drawn to love and obey Jesus, that means you've been brought from stone to flesh, from death to life. It means that God is with you. And one of the great things about reading through Ezekiel is you realize that truth that when God starts something, he always sees it through to the end. And therefore, if the church is to be revived by God's spirit in this nation, which we pray it will be, it will look like people broken by their sin, confessing it to Jesus and living in accordance with his word. That's the spiritual renewal and revival we we desperately pray for. Third thing that we need to see here, much briefer because we're out of time. God's reputation recognized amongst the nation. This, this is the purpose, okay? This is why God's doing this. This is why he's fixing people, restoring them, so that his name would be honored and glorified amongst the nations. That the great renewal that God will do amongst his people is not going to just benefit them. It's going to benefit the world as they look in and see that, that something's happening. And in verses 33 to 35, um, God tells the exiles of a restored land that he will give them. A land, did you notice the language, that will be like the Garden of Eden? When God lived with human beings in perfect joy and peace and security. And at that time, the nations will recognize his name His name will be honored. Not only that, but in verse 37 to 38, the fact that there's going to be this, he talks about this great multitude of people in Israel, like the the flocks that would gather in Jerusalem when it was sacrifice day and there would just be hundreds and thousands of animals. There'll be myriads of people. This restoration is going to encompass a huge mass of people that will be brought in from all nations to know God. Think of, of when God's spirit did come. Think of how we've seen these promises when God's Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 after Jesus had ascended and the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem and they all started speaking in in foreign languages so that people heard the good news of Jesus in their own tongue. And the good news of Jesus started to spread like a, a ripple out from Judea, Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. In the old covenant, the world had to come to Israel to see God. In the new covenant that Ezekiel looks forward to, Israel goes out to the world. The gospel goes out from Israel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's done that for thousands of years as numerous people across the nations have experienced what they would call the new birth. See, this promise here when we take the the end of this passage and we bring it into the New Testament, we see that it's bigger than just, it's not a physical land. There's something bigger going on here. It's the new Zion. It's the new creation. It's heaven 
When people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered around the throne of Jesus and there's one name that will be exalted above all names. As Paul says in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has been given the name that is above all names. That's when this promise to Ezekiel will be fully realized. And all of us who have repented and turned away from our sin and, and turned towards him will be perfectly restored and renewed in that new creation. So you struggling, doubting exile, take heart for Jesus will see your salvation through to the end. He's given you his spirit to renew you, to change you, and to take you home. And he does it not because we are great, but because he is great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great promise of restoration. Thank you, Lord, that as we look at this promise, it points forward to the atoning work of your son, Jesus. It points forward to the the spirit that was given, the spirit that changes and renews and takes hearts of stone and makes them into hearts of flesh. Father, how the exiles must have longed for these promises and looked forward with eager expectation, wondering how you would bring them to fruition. How the prophets and kings longed to know what we know how you did this. Thank you, Lord, that we are standing in the middle of these promises. We are experiencing them. Thank you that you are faithful. And when you start something, you will see it through to the end. Thank you that you are concerned for the glory of your name, that you are so great and so majestic and so awesome that the most important thing is you, You are the Alpha and Omega, Lord Jesus. You are the name that is held above all names. You are exalted. And you are the one that we want to glorify in all our words and thoughts and deeds. May we bring great honor to you in all that we do as individuals and as a church. May we represent faithfully the greatness of the King who has saved us and restored us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to...